0: to encourage you to take out your pew bibles in front of you and we're going to be working through genesis chapter 14 this morning but i wanted to explain something right away immediately in studying this text and as we will find out soon this is a hard passage and it starts with some names and locations that are unfamiliar hard to say and so because of that feared that we could very quickly say, well, I don't know who these people are or what they're talking about, and allow our minds to wander and not pay attention to what's going on in the text. And so this morning, I'm going to do something just a little bit differently from my normal routine. Instead of reading through the whole text and then preaching on it, we're going to read a little bit at a time, and then I'll make a couple of comments as we go with the idea that we can stay on top of and engaged with what's going on instead of get distracted. But Before we start reading the text, let's remind ourselves what we're doing. We're working through this part of the book of Genesis, looking at the patriarchs. These people that God first called out of all of the the nations of the earth and established a covenant relationship with them. And in looking at them, we are trying to answer the question, well, what does it mean for us to live as God's covenant children? As God has established a relationship with us, how are we to live in light of that? Because to state what should hopefully be obvious, for those that are in a relationship with the Lord, we should live a different kind of life. We should have different priorities, we should have different goals. And that does become apparent when you just look around and you ask, well, what are we living for? Why are we on this earth? And what are we supposed to be doing with the days that we have been given? Someone who is a follower of the Lord will answer that question very differently from someone who is not. And we know how people who are not in a relationship with the Lord answer that question. Day after day, we are bombarded with advertisements that try to convince us that this life is all about acquiring things, making ourselves happy through the acquisition of possessions and money, protecting ourselves with our financial gain so that we can enjoy the days that we have. Now, if that were to be our goal, if all that we were living for was the acquisition of finances and possessions, I can tell you how you can do that. You can gamble. You get the right numbers in the lottery, and you'll have more money than you will know what to do with. Make the right picks on the sporting events around you, and you can get free money. You can cheat. Cheat on your taxes, cutting corners here or there. You can cheat other people out of their money, coming up with schemes and scams so that they will give you your money for nothing. And then you can take it and reap the rewards. You can sue your way to financial gain. I think the modern American dream is that you'll have a surgery that just goes wrong enough. Or fall in just the right place, and then you can sue the corporations and get all kinds of funds, and then you'll be taken care of for the rest of your life. Or if you want just stuff today, it's getting more accessible and easier to just take it. Walk in, grab what you want, walk out without worrying of exchanging any money. They're not going to do anything as long as you keep it to a certain level. Now, of course, those are ways that people have and can gain possessions. But many more people who have tried those ways have found that that just leads to a path of a ruined life, broken relationships with so many other people. And even if or when they gain the funds, they don't get the happiness that they wanted. No, Christians, people who are in a relationship with God, are called to live by a different standard. But I will say that we are constantly tempted to live as the world encourages us to live. So why should we live any differently? With what priorities should we focus on in our lives? Those are some of the questions that Abram's going to experience in this text that we are looking at this morning. So let's go ahead and get into it. We're going to start by just looking at the first seven verses. It will still be up on the screen behind me, or as I had hoped, in your pew Bibles in front of you. So we find out, in the days of Ampharel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shedalomer, king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shembebar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served shedal But in the thirteenth year, they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Shadalmer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Asheroth Kenarim, the Zezim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva Kiriathim, and Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran in the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazarin Tamar. See, (laughs) lots of names of people in places that we don't know. It seemed pretty irrelevant. So let's explain. Uh, First of all, most of these names are not known. I don't know how to pronounce them, I just make it up. <laughs> just like you would too. And in that again, we can get lost in all of these details and figure out. So let's go to the basics. In essence, we are recognizing that there's two groups of people that are in conflict with one another. Team A, as I am calling them, are four kings. They're from Mesopotamia. That's from north up above Israel. And they're against Team B, five kings from the Jordan Valley, areas of names of cities that we actually do recognize, like Sodom and Gomorrah, just to the east of Israel. And what we learn is for at least the last 12 years, Team A has been the big dogs in the area. And what I mean by that is they are more powerful and strong and somewhat in like a mobster-like mentality. In their strength and their power, they go to these smaller city-states and they say, well, if you give us a little bit of money every year, if you contribute to us, you'll be safe. You'll be protected. We will not harm you. We won't threaten you and we'll defend you which is a good deal in some ways, but it's a straight-up bribe. And after 12 years, Team B kind of get together and say, well, we're sick of paying these people off, and if we work together, maybe we can stop making this payment and and protect ourselves from the consequences. And we find out that that's what they do in this 13th year. They decide, we're not going to make the payments anymore. Which works okay for a year, but in the 14th year, what we discover is Team A decides to go on a little bit of a trip to show off their power and their strength. Now again, I know that this is a map that you cannot see, but in these names of cities we don't understand or or recognize, you can look in a study Bible and they provide in the text a map of what we're looking at. And the kings are coming from Team A, the upper right-hand corner up over here above where the map is. And they go on this rampage and they make several stops along the way, working south on the east side of the Jordan River. They hit at least five different people groups in different cities, winning a war, defeating them immediately each step along the way. Then they continue actually fairly far south below where this map goes before they return back up north. And where we just ended reading, they are now just below the Dead Sea, back in the territory of Team B. So that's where we pick up our text continuing in verse 8. So then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. These are the people I called Team B. And they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Shedalamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Ampharel, king of Shinar, and Ariak king of Elisar, team A. Four kings against five. Now, the valley of Siddam was full of Bidouin pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled in the hill country." So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Well, despite their alliances, things for Team B end up not going any better than any of those other cities along the way. What we have learned is that Team A is a powerful, strong force that quickly and easily have gone from region to region, wreaking all kinds of havoc, taking what they want, And it seems like the decision to no longer pay their tribute was a bit of a foolish one. The battle as described in this part of the text is so briefly mentioned, it almost seems like it was a rout that was immediate. There's a mention of these Bidouin pits, and some suggest that in the chaos of the battle, in running away, some people accidentally fell into them. Others, like John Calvin, suggest that in fleeing, There was such vicious war that people actually chose to go into the pits and that type of a death rather than dying by the sword. Either way, what we learn is that Team A reigns supreme and Team B has been completely wiped out and defeated rather quickly. The more powerful victors taking the spoils as they go. Now we continue in verse 12 they also took lot the son of abram's brother who was dwelling in sodom and his possessions and went their way okay finally we now understand why we are hearing this story and about this different battle in the last text that we read, Genesis chapter 13, we looked at how there was a decision that Abram gave to Lot where he could choose where he wanted to live. And in making those choice, that choice, we highlighted how Lot had overlooked a couple of very important things that were going to potentially lead to some danger. And at the end of that text, we saw that he was living near, he had pitched his tent near the city of Sodom. Now we learn that he's actually living in Sodom. And in making that choice and living with those people, Lot gets all caught up in the midst of this battle. In fact, he is part of the spoils that Team A grabs, collects, and carries off. And as much as that's so briefly described in our text, as one commentator suggested, we shouldn't read over that far too quickly. Imagine what Lot had seen in the battles that had been engaged in. Imagine the fears as he realized that the people that were fighting on his behalf were losing that battle and people were fleeing in all kinds of directions. Imagine When the enemies entered into the city and went around him and said, You are coming with us. Grab everything that you are. Grab your whole family, all your stuff. You are ours now. And especially back in those days, victorious kings were not known for being very friendly to the people that they had defeated. And the great fear that much has seized Lot. What is going to happen to him? to his family members, his wife and his daughters, to the victors that have taken them captive. A lot of fear surrounds this text. But reading on. Then, one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Ashkel and of Anar. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen kinsmen, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. We learn here that Abram now finds out about Lot's situations. One of the people that fled, fled up to him and tells him about what took place. And in learning this information, let's acknowledge that Abram had every right to just scoff. This is what you get, Lot. You chose to go live near and then with those wicked people? These are the consequences for your actions. You'll have to bear them. And Abram would have been completely justified and was under no obligation of himself pursuing Lot or doing anything to defend him against this very powerful Team A, as we have been calling them. But he does. And in some ways, there we get a picture of Jesus... Jesus, who could have very easily said, all right, you've sinned against God and you're living with the consequences. I have no obligation, no necessity of preventing you from experiencing all of the consequences from the sins that you have committed. But instead, he decided to come to restore and to rescue, even, especially as we will highlight, at great cost to himself. So Abram, in trying to rescue him, gets together 318 men, and he goes after this huge force of people that have been mopping up and causing destruction everywhere they have gone. And yet, with just these 318 men, Abram's clan wins. Now, you could chalk that up to the fact that they decided to do a sneak attack at night. You could chalk that up to the fact that this group of fighters had been completely exhausted and assumed that there was no one pursuing them because they had defeated all of their enemies and so were caught completely off guard. Or you could see that this was clearly divine intervention. A small clan of just a countable 318 men defeating what was the most powerful force in the region at this day. This team that it so easily dispatched everyone else loses to Abraham and that is a huge victory on his behalf. And now Abram has the spoils. In knocking off these Mesopotamian kings, Abram is the big dog on the block. He is the one with the power. He is the one with the possessions. And in some ways, now the real battle begins. What is Abram going to do with these spoils and with this power? Now he could say, I am the big dog. I have the power and the people will need to bow to me. They'll have to start paying me allegiance and a tribute because I am the one that they should be afraid of. Or he could make that much more religious sounding and say, Well, clearly God has given me this victory, so God has given me the stuff. Stuff to make my life more comfortable, happier, easier. And therefore, I can now live in enjoyment of all of these possessions. These people can serve me and I will be able to be comfortable the rest of my life. This is an opportunity. It's a temptation for Abram to live like all of the other kings and live with the priorities that the rest of the world was living with the temptation of david to take the shortcut and kill saul before time was ready the temptation of jesus having been led into the wilderness after his baptism of the devil saying forsake the cross that's the hard way just bow to me and i will give you everything that you want take the shortcut it's a battle for abram's character and a revelation of where his priorities will lie. And into that battle, Abram gets an audience. Continuing in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Shelalomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet with Abram at the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So we are told that after the victory, two kings go out to meet with Abram. We first are told that the king of Sodom is there. And though we know he's there, he's kind of put to the side for just a moment. We'll get back to him before the text is over. But the other person where the spotlight gets focused on is this king named Melchizedek. Now, in truth, I could preach a whole other sermon on this person, His name is Melchizedek, which means the King of Righteousness. He is both the King of Salem, which later gets named Jerusalem, and he is also a priest of God Most High. Because of that, Melchizedek is mentioned in the Psalms and later in the book of Hebrews as a model for who and what Jesus would be as the great king-priest. But in our text, and keeping our focus there, a few things that he does stand out. First of all, he refreshes Abram. He brings to him bread and wine, which, yes, is another point that can be developed and highlighted in its connection with communion. He also blesses Abraham in a fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abram back in Genesis 12, that all of the nations would bless him and be blessed by him. And in that blessing, Melchizedek acknowledges that it was God who gave Abram the victory. He blesses God for the fact that Abram has won. And in response to this, we are told that Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he has. This is the first time that a tithe, which is one-tenth, is mentioned in the Bible. And it's a sign that Abram's choosing to do something different with his possessions that he has acquired. In recognition of the fact that God was the one that gave all of this to Abram, he returns 10% of what he has earned back to God through this priest as an offering of gratitude. And in many ways, that's what a tithe still is. It is a way for us to acknowledge that everything that we have is a gift from God. And so in gratitude and thanks for all of the blessings that God has poured out on us, we in response give back to God a portion of what he has first given to us as a way to acknowledge that this is his gift and we want to thank him for it. Again, as followers of Christ especially, we recognize that everything we have belongs to God. And therefore, it should be easy, it should be a wonderful joy to give back to God, even a small portion of all that he has blessed us with, trusting in him for the future. Now, what we see in Melchizedek and how he responds to Abram is contrasted very quickly in how we see the king of Sodom response. We are in verse 21 of the text. But what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me, let Anner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. So in contrast to the king of Salem, the king of Sodom offers no refreshment and no blessings. And the deal that he offers to Abram, as if he was in a position to negotiate, is actually, from a worldly perspective, a very good deal. Keep all of the possessions for yourself, just return the people to me. And again, here's the battle. Abram could very easily just have kept it all for himself, for his gain and his glory. He could have told the king of Sodom, you lost the battle, you have no right to any of this. He could have acquiesced to the terms and said, okay, thank you, I'll take all of this stuff, have your people but in response, instead, Abram says, no, I don't want any of it. I don't want even a sandal if it was something that came from you. And I'm going to give it all back to you. And the reason he does this is because he never wants the wicked king Sodom to look at Abram and be able to say, yeah, Abram's rich, but that's because I, I started him out. I let him have all of that stuff, and it's it's really my possessions that have caused him to be the rich person that he is. No, when God's timing comes and he does bless Abram, only God is going to be given the credit and the glory. Abram knows money and possessions will come and they will go. God will grant other victories, and so Abram lets all of the stuff go it's a totally different way of acting and responding to things that the rest of the world at this time and I think it's a good example of how we a Covenant children of God should view possessions money and power not to enrich ourselves and gain glory for our own kingdoms and causes but to be used to redeem And to restore that which is broken in this world by sin. Again, the temptation and the battle that we face is to be like the rest of the world. To see possessions and power as the things that will, for our benefit and glory, build us up. To build our storehouses and use power and finances for our joy, our comfort, and our glory. But history has shown that often Christians have not used power or possessions very well once they've received them. And instead, imagine, what could we do if we viewed our possessions as belonging to God? If we only gave a tenth of what God has given to us, what could we accomplish for God's kingdom Terms of the lives that could be redeemed and restored and what could be rebuilt instead of just our own possessions. And possessions and money, they're just example of all of the things that pull at our heart to draw us away from God. And really the decision is that battle that is internal Which is just as, if not more important, that the battles that are external, the wars that go on, the fighting that go on, God cares about the choices that you make on a day in and day out battle in those battles, and those battles need to be won. Here's the reality in Jesus Christ, we have everything we need. We have forgiveness, we have purpose. We have hope. We've got joy and we've got comfort. And any material blessing is just an addition to all of that. That is not what we live for. And therefore, if that is the truth, then we need to view our possessions, our time, our gifts, our talents as things that we are called to offer back to God so that his name can be glorified, his kingdom built, and being in relationship with him, we are called to serve him and live for him. Abram could have gone a whole nother way. He could have used these possessions to build his kingdom and power and glory, but he chose to return it and to wait on God's time for him to be blessed so that God would receive the glory. I think it's a good example for all of us as those who are trying to live as covenant children of God in how we view our lives and the possessions that God has given to us. In light of that, let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, uh, throughout time and history and throughout space, even in the world today, we recognize that we are blessed. We enjoy possessions and material things that other people around the world and previous generations could hardly even imagine. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness when far too often we have lived for the accumulation of those possessions. When we have been greedy and selfish with what you have given to us, thinking that we have deserved, we have earned, and we are therefore due what you have given to us. Lord, may we turn to you for everything that we need, the giver of every good and perfect gift. And though that does not mean that we will be rich, I pray that we will be rich in generosity. That we will be rich in love and service to you and to your kingdom. Lord, change the ray, the way that we live recognizing that as you gave everything in giving your son to us, that we are called to give what we have in response and in gratitude to you. Help us in every temptation that comes our way, especially in this coming week, to know that that is a battle, a battle that you, through your son and Holy Spirit, has given us the victory over, that we might stand firm, serving you in all that we are, and in all that we have. Lord, we surrender our lives to you, to you alone. Be the glory and the honor and the power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.